Thank you, Tad. Good morning, everyone. Kids, you are dismissed for Gospel Project. Hope you have a great time. Thank you, Micah. We'll be in uh, Philippians chapter 4 today, so if you'd like to turn there with me, that would be great. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you, and you can look a couple pages in, you'll find a table of contents. You can look up Philippians in the New Testament. We've been working our way through uh, this book. We're now in the last chapter. In a couple of weeks, we're going to start, believe it or not, a Christmas series. Christmas is almost here. All two of you are excited about that. (laughs) But today we'll be in Philippians uh, chapter 4. Last week, uh, we talked as a church family about how to have peace uh, in the church. Today, we're going to talk about how to have peace in your heart. So last week, how is it that we as people can work in relationship together and have peace with one another? Today, we'll spend our morning on how to have peace internally, how there can be peace in our hearts. But how Paul gets us there is we'll take a few minutes of explanation before we read the passage Uh, This letter, the letter we call today Philippians, was originally written to a people who lived in a town called Philippi, who made up the church, called the church at Philippi. They had a lot to be worried about. They were facing increasing opposition from the non-Christians around them, who didn't like their faith or their way of life. But as we learned last week, there weren't just external threats to peace. There were prominent church members who were having disputes among themselves. And so it probably felt as though the chaos around them, the opposition around them in the town, was now present in the church. Additionally, there were people claiming to teach the gospel, but in chapter 3 we see that they were actually teaching false doctrine, things that were leading people away from God, not towards them. And then, with all that hardship around them and within them, they looked to their model, their example, Paul, only to find that he too was in a time of hardship. He was in prison for his faith. So, external opposition, internal opposition, and then even their model, Paul, was in a time of opposition. Circumstantially, there was a lot to be worried about. I wonder if you can share that worry today. With this many people in the room, no doubt some of us have brought heavy burdens. So what is Philippians for you? Well, that's what we'll be learning and discovering this morning. Many times towards the end of the letters in the New Testament, so essentially Romans through the end of your Bible, there comes a list of commands. It sort of feels like The author loaded a shotgun and shot a bunch of commands out, and they spray all over the place. Either that, a list of commands, or there's a list of specific things to specific people. And frankly, if you make it that far in the book, in reading, it's easy to be tired and to just skip over that stuff. I think it doesn't really apply to us. And we come to a section like that today. But think of it this way. Uh, College students... When you left home for the very first time, 
your mom or dad likely had a list of things they spouted to you as you walked out the door. Maybe, it were things, maybe they were things like, go to class, be safe, call often, wash your clothes every now and then, stay away from frat parties, study every now and then. It just seemed like a splattering of commands that are not united in any way. Disconnected thoughts. Are you with me? Okay. It sounded like mom's words were all jumbled up, but actually they were held together. They were glued together by mom's care for you. So there was a thought that united all those thoughts that seemed ununited. Our passage today, Philippians 4, seemed like the very same thing. It's a list of commands, six of them, that seem random, but actually they're held together by Paul's care and concern for us. And what unites them is verse 1 of chapter 4. So let's read that verse before we read the rest for the morning. Philippians 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I long and love, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Beloved. What well, Philippians to stand firm against? Well, it's what I mentioned in the introduction. Opposition from outside the church and threats to unity inside the church. These things required the believers to stand firm. So when there's pressure, when there's suffering, when there's tension and hardship, how do people respond? When you are pressed, how do you respond? Some of us have disputes, like Yodia and Sidney. Others want to quit and give up. Some get angry. Others get anxious. Some have minds that seem to race out of control. Others cling to our stuff. The church at Philippi, if you read the letter closely, has all of those reactions. All of them. So what do you do when life's pressures feel like they could crush you? Well, God's answer through the book of Philippians of what we ought to do is to stand firm. But what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to stand firm when the pressures of life are hard? Well, Paul tells us in this fourth chapter in lots of different ways that we're to stand firm in our mind, that we're to think a particular way, and that these thoughts will drive a particular set of actions. So that's what we started last week. We started with be aware that pressure can cause us as Christians to fight among each other, to hold to hurts instead of forgiving. Today, we're told a list of, whole, of a, a whole other list of things. I had trouble with that. Today, we're told to do a whole list of things. There it is. We're told to rejoice, to nurture gentleness, to say no to anxiety and yes to prayer, to think about and to practice a certain set of actions. Now, this text has the power to transform your life because it has the power to instruct you how to give your mind over to God. And it's been my prayer that the Lord would do that in us today. 
So let's look at verse 4 together. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's if there's anything worthy of learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. As we work through this list of instructions today, I want to encourage you to think of them not as a random to-do list, uptight God, but rather as the antidote to anxiety, as the prescription to have peace inside when there's chaos on the outside. So the first of these instructions is that we would be people who rejoice. Christian, joy is not simply a personality trait given to some of us, nor is it a Christian platitude through which we just pretend. It's a command. God inspects us to rejoice. Constant grumpiness, pessimism, cynicism, and long-lasting despair are not simply personality quirks to tolerate. They're sins to kill. God expects us to be people of joy. To rejoice always is to nurture an attitude of gratitude so deep that it transcends surroundings. You see, Paul himself had come to experience that it's possible to have peace even in hardship. As one author put it, there is a life that goes deeper than the surface storms of circumstance. Rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. Brothers and sisters, circumstantially today, your life may have little to rejoice in. Your health may be poor. Your bank account may be empty. Your relationships may be strained. So you don't have to come in this room and pretend that everything's okay. You might very well be in a difficult have been rescued by God from his eternal wrath. You've been adopted into his family forever. You've been released from sin and shame and guilt. So don't you see, whatever circumstances you're in are simply the chisel of God shaping you into greater Christ-likeness. They are the very tool he's using to break away from you the things that draw you away from joy and happiness and to encourage you into deeper relationship with him. You can trust him with whatever it is you're facing. He is a good God. Now we may struggle with doubt at times to believe that. But eventually, because as Tad prayed, the Spirit of God, we will come back. Who will separate us from the love of God? 
Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, let's be a people erupting with joy. That's our first instruction of how to get through hard times. To nurture, to cultivate, to water, to seek joy in the Lord. Now if that doesn't sound weird, the next one, we're told in our next command to nurture gentleness. To nurture gentleness. What do you want to be known for? You lay awake at night and you can't sleep and you're tired of lulling your brain with Netflix, what do you dream of becoming? Is, it, is your dream of perfectly behaved, successful in all endeavors, vegetable eating children? <laughs> is it to gain notoriety in your field? Is it to eat and exercise in such a way that you become physically desirable? Is it to graduate with honors? What is it that you want? Philippians 4 verse 5 says the thing to be known for, to pursue, is reasonableness. I think that's kind of strange. Who wants to be known for being reasonable? That sounds weak. Sounds pathetic. It sounds like you would be a doormat getting walked on, doesn't it? It's okay to read the Bible and be honest. Philippians 4 verse 5 says, let your reasonableness be known to all. In other words, Christians, we're to be known as people that are gentle and kind and forbearing. Are those the adjectives that come to mind when you think of a follower of Christ? Gentle, kind, forbearing. Maybe to press it a little bit closer to home, how would your social media post change from the last week if you were known for being gentle rather than being right? Friends, I don't ever remember a time when the general tone of daily conversation was, was as harsh as it is today. Irrational and intolerant rather than reasonable and gentle seem to be the norm in daily conversation. But it ought not be that way. To experience a change in the tone of our tongues, there must be a change in the thinking of our minds. And it's that Paul is writing about. Brothers and sisters, we of all people ought to be gentle gentle. Why? Well, verse 5 tells us, the Lord is at hand. God himself is here. God is with us. Our eternal God is here. And from this God, we deserved only damnation. But he's instead given us love. 
Our Heavenly Father was anything and everything but gentle with His Son as He hung on the cross and took the punishment for our sin so that the Father could be gentle with you. You see, we don't deserve from God, but God has given it to us. And He's given it to us precisely because that's not what He gave His Son. And so of all people who could be gentle, it's us. We can be gentle with others who don't deserve it because we've experienced gentleness from God when we did not deserve it. So I'd encourage you to assess in your heart and even do something that's scary. Ask someone around you. Not right now. But ask someone close to you, am I known as a gentle person? Am I gentle with you? And then be gentle with whatever they say. (laughs) Rejoice always. Work so hard at being gentle and reasonable and forbearing and kind that that's the reputation you develop. And now we come to what's probably one of the most famous commands in the entire Bible. Much so it's worth reading again. Look at verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This, like other generations, has been called, rightly, the age of anxiety. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. All you have to do is turn on your phone, open up your computer, or flip on your TV to see genuinely horrific, catastrophic news. It's easy to become pervasively pessimistic. Doesn't it seem like things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse? More terrorism, more mass shootings, more rape, more instability. Even the things that seem good often turn out for bad. Just as one example I was thinking about this week, several years ago, a movement spread across the other side of the world, known as the Arab Spring. Can you think of one country that's known today to be better off than they were before the Arab Spring? There isn't one. There are endless opportunities for anxiety. Not just on the other side of the world, but in our own homes. Are you anxious Stop it. (laughs) Quit it with the petty anxiety. Stop being selfish. Are you even a Christian? That's what it feels like, doesn't it? Doesn't God realize that tell an anxious person to quit being anxious only makes you more anxious? (laughs) 
It doesn't work. If you re- the command to be anxious feels like just another cause to be anxious. There is, however, a way out of anxiety. Many of us are looking for it all the time. Prevailing wisdom to set a massage, take a day off, pick up a hobby, take fewer hours next semester, make more time for yourself, exercise, eat better, bust out those essential oils. Many of those may be tools to employ. I'm not questioning that. But they are, without a doubt, not the best tool. God's prescription is prayer. Is that better? That mic was giving me anxiety. God's prescription for our struggle with anxiety is prayer. So much so that he says, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing, but talk to God about everything. Is that even possible? Doesn't that feel like the thing mom said before you left for college? And you just want to tune her out and say she doesn't know any better. What if we take God at his word, though? That as Christians, if we learn to cultivate, and it will not happen overnight, it won't happen in a week, it won't happen in a month. But over time, as you work at this, is it possible to learn in everything to have an attitude of prayer? And that when a thought comes to your mind that would typically produce anxiety, that instead of focusing on it, that you simply lift it up to the Lord. That's what we're told to do. But why is that the prescription? Why does prayer diffuse anxiety? Well, unless you're anxious due to some biological reason, and for some of us that's an issue we've got to work through, You need a doctor's help. But unless it's that, the anxiety that we experience is often due to what might be called misplaced loves. You see, for Christians, God is our highest love. He is our greatest pursuit. He's the preeminent one of our hearts. That's that's what it means to become a Christian is it means we turn from everything else being first to God being first. But the temptation, even for a Christian, is to let other things creep back in and become our highest love again. Right? And when we give in to that temptation to love something else more than God, then an idol is reborn inside of us. And as one theologian said, idols never fail to fail. And so we exchange God for something else, and for a while that seems like it works. 
that idol gives us a quick fix. But over time, that idol will fail. And what actually produces the anxiety in us is the loss or potential loss of that idol. And so it's not the circumstance at all that is actually producing the anxiety. It's the love of something that can't give us what we want it to. And as we begin to find that to be true, then our response to that is anxiety. So an example that might hit close to home. Some of us will go home for Thanksgiving this week. For some people, that's a cause for delight. But for others, even the thought of going home seems to produce anxiety. Why? Well, it's probably not because the food is so bad. It's likely because you value something and going home feels as though that something is going to be taken away. So just for example, some of us have homes of origin in which the table is more a place for fighting than it is a room, a table, for feasting. And so we get anxious thinking about going home. But it's not really the thought of going home that's causing the anxiety. It's that we value harmony more than we value godliness coming out in that conversation. In other words, if my greatest love is God, then the thing I most will want for my family is for them to come to know and experience the God of love. And so I might have to sit through some meals where I am mocked, jeered, made fun of, treated condescendingly because other people at the table don't share the same belief in God. But if I love God more than I love a peaceful meal, then I'm going to engage in that conversation with a lack of anxiety. So it's that I've exchanged God's love for an easy time, for harmony at the table. Now, that's hard to receive. I, I understand that. And yet, I would encourage you to think deeply on that as you prepare to go home. God is to be on the throne of our hearts. When he's not, anxiety will inevitably be the eventual result. Anxiety, you see, chases away joy and peace and reasonableness. But God can restore order. He can put things back the way they're supposed to be. And his method to reorder the loves of our heart is prayer. Anxiety forces us to look inward and outward. So we look inward to blame ourselves, and we look outward to blame other people. But prayer causes us to look upward. And in that looking upward, then God helps us see things for what they really are. He restores reality. You see, prayer helps us recognize the living Lord who is always involved in our lives. Now, you'll notice there in your Bible the promise that comes with this command. It's a beautiful one. It says, peace will guard your heart and your mind. 
The word guard is a specific word. It's most often used to talk about the military. And the image couldn't be more beautiful. It goes like this. Pray about everything, and God will set his soldier of peace to guard your heart and your mind. Christian, when you followed Christ, when you were saved, you were given peace with God. But it's possible to have peace with God, but not to live in the peace of God. Now, I know that's really specific, and you're smelling turkey, and you're looking forward to tonight, and you're daydreaming about food, but listen to that preposition. Being a Christian means you have peace with God. It means his posture towards you is not wrath, it's not judgment, it's not harshness, ever. It's always peace. But that's different than having the peace of God. The peace of God is that sense that God's with me, that I can face anything that there are no external or internal circumstances worthy of disrupting my calmness in the Lord. That, that kind of peace requires you to pray. So if you're without peace, it very may well be that it's because you've been without prayer. And so Paul's word is not intended to be a harsh rebuke but rather a loving brother putting his arm around your shoulder and saying, here's the prescription. There is a way to have peace. And notice in that verse, it says nothing about circumstances changing. You may find when you pray that the thing you're praying for isn't actually what you really needed. What you really needed was the peace of God to be given to you. Our perspective can be transformed even if our circumstances do not change. So candidly, as one prone to anxiety to another, I'm assuming there's more here than just me, I can tell you from personal experience, regular, thoughtful, consistent, desperate prayer leads to the ridding of anxiety and the presence of peace. Rejoice always, be known for reasonableness, be anxious for nothing but pray about everything. This is what Paul tells us to do. This is how to prevail when things are hard. Now there's two more things. Verse 8. Finally, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. This is the closest thing in the Bible from start to finish to what we might call a list of virtues. Some of us will remember that in studying ancient Greece, so Plato or Aristotle. They were made famous largely for the lists of virtues that they called people to aspire to. 
But it doesn't take belief in God to understand the importance of your thoughts. Lots of people, secular and Christian, have taught us over the centuries that what we do with our minds determines much of our experience. It's common knowledge, in other words, that what we choose to focus on in our minds shapes the kind of people we become. Paul's list, though, emphasizes more than just a general virtue list that you could toss Christ out and keep the list. Paul's focusing on what's good and beneficial. Paul's focusing on what aptly represents the character of Jesus Christ. When you read those books in the Bible, those biographies, if you will, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you were to read through those and study who is Christ, how did he treat people, what did he do when he was pressed, what did he pray about, How did he respond to opposition? Then what you would find is a man who responded with this list of character traits. So what Paul is actually doing is he's saying, think on the life of Christ, and you'll be thinking on this list. Choose to ponder in your minds what's pleasing to God, what's good for people. Brothers and sisters, if you struggle to follow and enjoy God in your daily thoughts, then understand why this is hard. A lot of us do. This is hard because the battleground for peace and joy in the Christian is the battle of your mind. You have to look no further than why you're not growing up much in the Lord than to your mind. Christian growth, progress, experiencing the peace of God, not running away when things are hard, being a person of consistency, all of that is won and lost in what you do with your mind. And so, brother or sister, if you are battling little in your mind, then you are winning little. Christianity comes down to what we do with our thoughts. So ask God to help you think godly thoughts. Invite another brother or sister in Christ into your mind. That's scary, isn't it? But that's what we're supposed to do for one another. There ought to be someone among the church family that you can say, I am struggling to think godly thoughts. Would you pray for me? And even if they say to you in response, well, what are they? Then we ought to be close enough to each other that we can freely share those with no sense of guilt or condemnation. A great preacher of the Westminster Chapel in London years ago wrote this in a book. I found it immensely helpful. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they started talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. 
You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You have to say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you being disquieted? You must turn on yourself, unbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Isn't that good? If that sounds to you like psychobabble, read the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is filled with just that. Real people taking real struggles, working out their thoughts, and ending up many times back in praise of God. Now, you don't have to spend a lot of time doing that to find it working. You will find very quickly, if you will quit listening to your own thoughts and instead speak to them, that God changes them. The counterfeit is modern positive thinking. But that counterfeit isn't 100% false. It works because it understands the principle that you are largely what you choose to think. So Paul very simply here is telling us, work at your thoughts and you'll be growing up in the Lord. Now I don't have long to spend on this, but there's one more that it gives us. And the principle behind it is that what we choose to ponder leads to what we will practice. What we choose to think about will determine how we live. The Christian community is designed by God to be a community full of godly people to follow. It's not a group led by one individual. It's a family who helps guide and equip and comfort and counsel and encourage and confront each other. And so Paul ends this section of commands very simply to this church by saying, look around, look to your leaders, look closely at how we live, and then ask us, why are you doing that? Why are you praying that? Why are you reading that? Why didn't you do that? How in the world did you ever stop that? Ask tons and tons and tons of questions to fellow Christians who you see being a little bit further along in their spiritual growth than you. Because what we ponder will be what we practice. Christian, this is how to get through trying times. Rejoice always. Work so hard and long at being gentle that you're actually known for it. Be anxious about nothing and pray about everything. Think about the person in the life of Jesus. And then put into practice what you see modeled. There is in the Christian to be a buoyancy. A buoyancy that keeps you from being drowned by the difficulties of life. When I was a kid, we uh, sometimes lived near the ocean, other times lived near lakes. And 
my brothers and I, one of our favorite things to do would be to swim out to a buoy, partly because that's past where mom and dad said to swim, but then to work really hard to get that buoy under the water. And eventually we could get the darn thing under the water, but what would happen? It doesn't matter how big it is, how many of us sat on it, how deep we pushed it down, it would inevitably come back up. Brothers and sisters, that is to be a Christian. The storms of life will come, and they might push you down under the water temporarily. But joy is, is a buoyancy that ought to pull you back up. How? It's by doing these things that God will raise you back up. In closing, those of you here today who are not yet certain about Jesus, maybe you've heard the Bible has lots of discrepancies. You can't actually trust it. Maybe you've seen Christians claiming one thing with their mouths and not living it with their lives. Maybe you're struggling to see proof. So you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I think this is the kind of sermon that it would be easy to hear and to like. And to say, now, those are some principles that actually make sense. There's none of that Jesus rising from the dead stuff. They're just good things to do. I think I'll take those on. Try harder, think better, life will turn around. That is an understandable reaction, but it's also incredibly foolish because you do not have the power to do it. You see, it's not simply difficult for you to take on this way of life. It's impossible. Because I haven't today spoken to a group of believers and said, you can do this on your own. I've said rather, God lives in you. And as you say no to your selfish strength, or lack thereof, and yes to God's power within you, then you can learn how to live this way. So, Christian, the message to you is to rely on the strength that God supplies you because he's already saved you. But to the non-Christian, that has yet to happen. You see, everything we've talked about today is present in other places in the Bible. And sometimes it describes it as fruit. Why does it do that? Well, because it's the result of something else. And non-Christian, I would love for you to hear that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and the rest of that list come not by you trying hard to follow an external set of morals, but by you coming to the place of admitting, I can't, and I need a Savior. That Savior is Jesus Christ. He died in your place so that your can'tness can be put on him and his canness can be put on you. That's the gospel.
Would you accept it today? Let's pray. Father, I pray now that as we wrap things up, that we would turn our eyes towards you. I pray first and most passionately for those here today who have yet to turn their lives over to you. I pray that today would be the day that the gospel clicks. That God, you'd open minds and hearts to understand and to desire you. And that then, Father, they would see the goodness of the gospel and turn from sin and turn to you, believing that you came and died and rose again. I pray, Father, that you would save. And that then, as we end in just a moment, that the person that prays to receive Christ would tell the person they've come with, would find me out on the patio, and would express what God's just done so that we can encourage them. And then, Father, I pray for fellow believers here who have already experienced that being welcomed into God's family moment. And yet many of us may struggle. Maybe we came today struggling to have a spiritual buoyancy. The pressures of life are weighing us down, and we're not processing those well with our minds. So, God, would you forgive us for spiritual laziness? And for looking more inward than looking upward. And God, in your great strength, would you renew a joy, the joy of the Lord. Revive in us a a sense of spiritual buoyancy. Yes, for us, that we might walk in your ways and experience your peace. But also for everybody else around us, that they might see in us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Chuck, and super grateful for the scriptures that speak so directly to our lives, even our anxiety, and strongly encourage you, if you sense God is stirring in you uh, something, feel free uh, definitely to find someone. Um, But speaking